Welcome everybody to Slip Angle Show. Uh, it is Tuesday night at 10 p.m. And that means that it is time for some uh, dial your friends in Slip Angle. On the phone, I have uh, owner, proprietor of the winning formula. So Aaron Lichty's on the line. He's a uh, Grid Life supporter. He is a Patreon, which is cool, or a Patreon. Okay. Uh, and uh, he races GLTC cars, and, well, uh, he lives in Louisville, and so do I, and now we're friends. Hi, Aaron. <laughs> Hello, Abe. Uh, I think you and I have been on the phone for an hour already, uh, but mm-hmm. we didn't record any of that. Good. <laughs> um, what I wanted to talk with you about is your shop. Um. At some point, I'd like to have the conversation about how you got into uh, running a shop and how okay. you became a mechanic, because I think people would be interested in your path. But sure. uh, the last time that you and I hung out, you told me about a new customer that you uh, just had come into the shop. Can you can you describe this encounter in excruciating detail? Uh <laughs> I, I will start by saying that I'm slightly uncomfortable talking about a, a customer. It's kind of like a, I don't know, like a, like a, a patient doctor confidentiality agreement. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think that if, if I were going to speak about a customer, it would be somebody that I hope is only a one-time customer. And that would be a good, simple way to define this particular encounter in this customer. Okay. So, um, you, you have this person and in general, uh, there is some amount of early exchange that happens, uh, by phone or email. And importantly, traditionally, there is something that you make customers do before you, uh, start a new relationship, uh, with a customer. There was a breach of protocol in this, in this situation because there was no phone call. There was no appointment making. It was like a walk-in customer, which is not something that is common for us. Like our shop is just off of a, you know, minor thoroughfare. So we don't have like street side frontage that would attract uh, walk-in type of customers. Um, and then furthermore, we chose the name winning formula and have no reference to automotive repair on our signage for a very specific reason. And that specific reason is to not attract walk-in customers. So right. This gentleman was a walk-in customer. We do occasionally get people like this. And the the catalyst for these interactions is that uh, we have uh, like positive online reviews um, which are something that we've allowed to happen organically, never encouraged anybody to write a review for us, just have them happen. Um, and people will occasionally just generally Google search for automotive repair and stumble upon our reputation. There's a number of reviews that reference like problem solving and diagnostic abilities and stuff. And so we'll get these, um, challenging vehicles, um, which is not a problem because we love challenging vehicles, but sometimes challenging vehicles are owned by challenging customers. Um, and this was, um, was that situation. So uh, in your shop, 
you probably have some areas of specialization. You already talked about um, problem solving and diagnostic. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. But if you had to, to boil down in a nutshell what the winning formula is and what it does uh, exceedingly well, what are those things? Uh, I mean, that, it's, it's challenging because we do a lot of things. But I think something that's important for, for listeners of your show to understand is that we don't just do motorsports work in the shop. Um, so we try best, our, best we can to balance the – sorry, my cat's attacking me. <laughs> Friendly cat. Yeah, she's not a friendly cat at all. She's a terrible cat. Um, but we try to balance uh, what we do in the shop as what we would characterize like 50% motorsports preparation and 50% general service. Um, and on the general service side of things, we we try to attract uh, picky customers. Like we want picky people to come to our shop because we're particular people. Um, and those type of people are going to value what we do. And they don't, um, you know, or they struggle to find that level of attention to detail and, and expertise at other shops. We also have a reputation in town, um, not just amongst our customers, but amongst even other shops for taking on challenging diagnostic um, problems. So um, at the end of the day, um, you know, hanging parts on and quote unquote fixing cars is the easy part of the job. Um, diagnosing the problem is the challenging part. And that's what, um, you know, sort of separates the the professional auto mechanic from the, you know, the amateur or the the C team player, if you will. Sure. Um, so we, we don't just get race cars in the shop and this, this particular gentleman um, who, who's fine. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He was not a mean spirited individual. He was, he was perfectly, um, you know, mild mannered. Um, he just wasn't maybe the best fit, um, for, for what we do at the shop. Um, I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but just like the overwhelming stench of cigarettes in the vehicle <laughs> and not to say that people can't smoke cigarettes and value a detail oriented mechanic, but I can tell you this, they can't smoke this many cigarettes and they can't ash them in their vehicle to the degree that this individual did and have a great deal of appreciation for the type of service that, that we like to provide at the shop. Fair enough. So, uh, in general, I, th I think you told me this, so I'm hoping that you'll touch on it. Um, you will often do these kind of early introduction, either calls or emails. Uh, mm -hmm. but importantly, you always, um, ask for something from the customer. Uh, yes. tell me, tell me about what you do and why that's important. Um, I guess, so there's certain businesses that really want to sell you things and they want to make it as easy as possible for you to buy that thing. Um, I don't want to make it sound like I try to make people's lives difficult, but I'm definitely not so desperate to sell you something that I'm going to do everything for you. And so I have found that on average, we have better relationships or attract a better kind of customer when the customer has to invest some minuscule amount of time and energy into making an appointment or getting their car into the shop. So if somebody like this individual were to walk into the shop as he did, um, I would not say, Oh yes, sir. Let me get your keys and I'll get right on it. At the same time, I, I wouldn't be rude or inconsiderate to him. I would be very friendly in my introduction. I would say, hi, it's great to meet you. We're really glad you came in. But we work on an appointment basis, and we really need to stay focused on the appointments and the cars that we're servicing here today. 
let me give you my card and here's my email address, my website, my phone number. If you don't mind, you can either fill out the contact form on the website or just send me a quick email, um, describe what's going on with your vehicle um, and we'll get you on the schedule to make that appointment. And so I just give him a small task, a small chore to make the appointment. Um, and if he's going to go home and spend that time and make that investment, which is going to take him like between two and five minutes, um, he's got a little skin in the game. He's put a little energy and effort into it. Um, and generally I have better relationships with people like that. And honestly, a part of me hopes that he won't even fill out the email and bring the car back. Um, but if, if he does, then usually the interaction is positive from there on where if you make it too easy, um, it, it's, it's hard to predict how the, the rest of the communication is going to go with the customer. Well, it's, it's interesting because as you describe it in this kind of service environment, it's almost the opposite of a business model like Amazon, which is, uh, sure. make it as effortless as possible to purchase goods and services. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you are rewarded for how much you can consume, um, yeah. in, in your model, the, um, demonstration of commitment to a shared resolution uh, is almost a prerequisite for having a successful business encounter. Maybe. And I should add too, for like people who are existing customers, my goal is definitely to make their life as easy as possible and as pain-free as possible. Like Jared bends over backwards to, to help our existing customers. I mean, didn't you borrow his car? Sure did. And did he pick it, drop it off at your house for you? Sure did. Okay. So yeah. So I don't, I don't want the impression to be made that like we're, we're going to make people work for us to work on their car, but for an initial interaction as an initial screening process, when I know nothing about somebody, I find that approach to be helpful. But once we're past that, once somebody has been a customer one time, we can very quickly flip over to a very customer focused, um, you know, make this as painless and easy as possible because we want your continued business. Sure. Um, sure. But the first interaction, um, yeah, I don't have automotive in the name of our shop because I don't want people to know what we are until they know what we are. You sure. have to learn about the shop. Um, you have to know something about the shop's reputation and what it does to even find your way into our door. Um, and again, it just makes the interaction uh, easier from that point on because you already know a little bit about us. You've already put some energy into getting there in the first place. So uh, you you described a breakdown uh, in some communication, and this person is is now in your shop. And yep. uh, what kind of car do they have? They have a 2003 BMW 540i. Gross. I know. Well, a lot of people like those, and a lot of people think that those V8s were kind of cool. And um, they're kind of cool until you have to work on them. And actually, they're really not even that bad to work on. They're just bad to work on when they have 120,000 miles and have never had a competent individual work on them. Um, and that's kind of where we were where we were kicking off on this one. Okay, so uh, describe the situation. Um. BMW 540i, 119,000 miles, which is not that high a mileage for one of those at this point. So what is that? That's a 18-year-old car with 120,000 miles. Um, what is that? 6,000 miles, just under 6,000 miles a year. Yeah. Um, and so the, um, oh, it's a little more than that, 7,000. Anyways, 
Um, it's not like terribly high mileage, but the car is not well cared for, um, mostly on account of the, the C- cigarettes. The cigarettes, yeah. Just really nasty. Um, and of course, like, you know, first thing you do as a mechanic, you know, approach the vehicle, see the massive amount of cigarette smoke, and then went back and like put some clean gloves on so that I didn't have to touch the like smoke covered interior surfaces of the vehicle. Um, and then just like check basic fluid levels on the car, the obvious things, like you want to start an engine that doesn't have any oil or coolant in it. Um, and then scan the engine computer for fault codes and it's a E39, you know, 540. So and the like scanner 40. says, bro, just throw the whole car away. Yeah. It has like 20 fault codes, which isn't necessarily, you know, particularly intimidating or problematic either. Um, but the problem was like when you pop the hood, um, it was clear, that it was actually clear two things one that the car had not had much maintenance until recently and that somebody had been throwing parts at the car trying to fix the problem that it had and had failed and that's why this thing had washed up on our shore okay so uh customer states what uh (laughs) that's the other red flag customer states that he got an oil change and after the oil change the car began smoking and running poorly and we've established that the car smoking is uh, separate and distinct from the customer smoking. Yes, yes. The, <laughs> the, the, car, uh, the car is taking after its owner and it is now also smoking an unhealthy uh, <laughs> amount <laughs> of fumes. Okay. That's for sure. So uh, you, you're presented with this uh, mm-hmm. and a customer that just walked in. Now what? Yeah. Uh, well, I should say the customer's left. So the customer has dropped the vehicle off. So there's, there's not a customer sitting there waiting um, for me to look at the car. So he's he's dropped the car off without an appointment. Um, I believe, I never confirmed this, but I assume that he was informed that in dropping the car off without an appointment that we weren't going to immediately work on it, um, you know, that we would, it'd be a couple days and, and we'll get back to him. Um, of course, anytime somebody drops a car off, I try to go immediately look at it because even if somebody drops a car off without an appointment, you know, we have existing customers that, you know, emergencies happen. The car breaks down or has a problem and they bring it in. I don't just want it to sit there for three days if it's a 15-minute fix to the problem. Of course. Um, and so even if we're busy and packed, I try to go spend 15, 20 minutes with the car just to make sure it's not something that I can knock out and fix right away, just to size up the task. Um, and so when I went out to size this thing up, um, I should say I had my wisdom teeth pulled like four days prior. Um, so I wasn't like feeling great and I wasn't in a particularly good mood. And I remember inhaling the air in the car and just thinking about like how filthy the air was and how it was like running over the like gaping wounds in my mouth and just feeling like an overwhelming sense of disgust at the moment. (laughs) And then I went in and gave Jared a really mean, ugly look, um, and probably said something shitty about, uh, you know, the walk-in customer with the like 18 tons of cigarettes. Oh, I remember what I said. I said something about like a Buffalo wild wings ashtray in like 19 in like 2003 um, was basically what that vehicle was (laughs) Um, and that it was a problem. And then I asked Jared, I said, what was, what was your impression of the guy who dropped it off? And uh, Jared said that he was, he was fine. He was, he was even tempered and, and easy to talk to. And I told him that I thought that the car told a very different story. And I, I questioned his judgment, at least in that moment. Um, so I looked over the car. 
um, realized that it needed a lot and that that's a really hard conversation to have with somebody that you have no rapport with. So I was a little frustrated um, that I was like kind of, uh, you know, you feel a little bit like, like, okay, I'm set up for failure on this one. Sure. Um, so I actually didn't call the customer that day because I just I needed a, a, a mental day to kind of digest it all. And then the next day, I basically did like what I would call like a screening phone call. So I've done very little to the car at this point, except for scan the, the engine control module, record the fault codes, um, check the fluid levels on the car, take a quick peek under the hood, um, cleared the codes, started the car briefly. Scowled. It's got like. Yeah, it had like two dead cylinders um, when I started it. So it was like misfiring on two cylinders immediately. And I was like, okay, that's enough information for now. It's time to make a phone call. Because um, keep in mind, I've never serviced this car before. So you know nothing about what you're getting into. And it's an 18-year-old car. So somebody's been here. Um, so I called the customer. Um, I did not have a particularly positive impression of who I was about to speak to. Again, I'm judging quite harshly based on the amount of cigarette ash in this vehicle to give like a, a visual, um, the ashtray in those vehicles, which I don't even think people who smoked use the actual ashtrays in their vehicles. This BMW ashtray was like filled with cigarettes bursting out of it. And then there was like fine bits of cigarette ash on every single surface in the car. <laughs> and then the steering wheel of the vehicle um, you couldn't see the leather anymore because there was like a 16th of an inch layer of just like soot. filth oh, and yeah. soot on the steering wheel. So it was like absolutely repulsive. And just a quick assessment of a 2003 540i that's had like little service and or incompetent service, you know, in so much as it's had. It is not going to be a cheap repair. And generally speaking, people who leave their cars like this. Um, are not apt to invest, you know, the, the, the necessary funds into repairing a vehicle of this sort. Um, so to me, the car just kind of seems like a chore um, that I need to get rid of. Okay. Um, so I called the gentleman and I asked him uh, how he heard about us, even though Jared had said he, he did a, um, like an internet search. I just wanted to hear it again. And um, said he, searched about the shop and, and found us and figured we'd give it a go. I said, well, um, you know, are you from the area? Yep. Um, how long have you owned the car? I bought it new. And I'm like, okay, well, that's something of a good indicator. Um, I asked him who had serviced it up until this point. He said the BMW dealer. Wait, um, can I interject I, with a question? Sure. Uh, if the person said that they bought it new, mm -hmm. um, as as you met them eventually, did was their age consistent with uh, the age at which someone might buy a brand new BMW 540i in 2003? Yeah, I would say he was probably uh, late 50s, early 60s. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so um, back to questions. He didn't, he didn't sound like he was in his late 50s, early 60s on the phone, but I didn't doubt him um, that that he had that he had bought it new. Um, he sounded sleepy on the phone and like he wasn't listening to me very well, um, which is, which is okay. Um, again, that's kind of what you get when you don't have any rapport with the person that you're, that you're talking to. Sure. Um, and I asked him if he could fill me in on, I asked him when the last time the car was serviced, when was the last time it saw a mechanic? He said two years ago, he doesn't drive it very often. 
Um, I asked him who did the oil change recently that brought on all his problems, <laughs> you know, as, as far as he was, was aware or concerned. Um, he said he didn't know. Um, so I, I didn't ask him, you know, I, I infer that maybe as a wife that drives a car or something like that, I did not ask. Um, I asked him if he knew of any other like major service histories on it. Like those cars are really common for vacuum leaks, like basically everything that's attached to the intake manifold. Um, hell, everything that's attached to the engine basically leaks. Um, it's <laughs> not if, if, if any of the, if any of these words mean anything to you, I asked him about the crankcase ventilation, asked him about the air oil separator, if any of those words meant anything to him or if he had any service records where he could look through for those keywords. And he basically said that um, he did not recognize any of those words. He did not believe it had had any of those services um, and that the spark plugs had never been changed. Um, and so he thought maybe it was the spark plugs. And basically the entire conversation was like completely unhelpful. Um, in a waste of time, other than I uh, regarded him as kind of sleepy and inattentive in the conversation and did not feel any better about working on the car um, or his ability to afford the repair. Okay. Um, so that's And that. so how did that uh, mesh with what you saw when you opened the hood? Uh, well, so at this point I was like, all right, well, I've got to, I've got to go diagnose the running problem on this vehicle. So it had a uh, dead number one and number seven cylinder. Um, so I pulled the engine covers off and I immediately am greeted by eight brand new ignition coils. Um, and so I'd like, like to think you would remember that, uh, putting those on. Um, and I pulled the ignition coil out and I pulled the number one spark plug out and it was a brand new NGK spark plug, uh, like literally brand new. Um, and it was completely oil fouled. Um, and so I just took the two cylinders that were like dead misses, pulled the plugs out, cleaned the oil off of them, um, cleaned some of the, the buildup on the plugs off and stabbed them back in so that the car wouldn't have a total dead miss. Um, and then I was able to start the car, uh, without a misfire, which left the fueling in closed loop. So I could see fuel trims. And of course the fuel trims are like maxed out positive correction at 25%. So I know it's got a big vacuum leak. Um, so I smoke tested the car, um, at the point of smoke testing the car, I noticed that it had a brand new throttle body on it, which is slightly peculiar because, um, when those cars were kind of in their prime from a service standpoint, like the um, you know, 2007, you know, 2006, 2007 through maybe like 2013, 14, you know, we would see a lot of those in the shop and I did a ton of repairs on them and I've never replaced a throttle body on one. Um, not to say that throttle body can't go bad, but it's just an unusual thing to see brand new on the car. Sure. Um, the crankcase ventilation valve was brand new as well. Uh, one of my keywords that he, that he didn't, uh, didn't recognize or appreciate. Um, and I found, you know, two massive vacuum leaks, um, uh, one of which I was able to like, uh, temporarily kind of resolve for the sake of testing, um, not repair, but resolve for testing. And then once I had it down to one vacuum leak, um, the fuel trims are still at 25%. Um, but I felt pretty confident that resolving that vacuum leak might not bring, you know, the car back to perfection, but would probably uh, close the car down enough within its ability to, to self-correct for, for whatever lesser vacuum leaks persisted. So basically we've got oil filed spark plugs. Um, we've got a vacuum leak. 
Um, and so if you fix the vacuum leak and you clean off the spark plugs, the engine's probably going to run reasonably well until the oil reaccumulates um, in the manifold to, you know, foul the spark plugs out again. Right. Um, and with the new crankcase ventilation valve on one of those cars, there's basically only, I should say, you can see the oil in the intake manifold when you're doing the smoke test. So, you know, the oil is not getting in through the cylinder, but rather through the intake. Um, so if the crankcase ventilation valves new and functioning properly, um, the, uh, the other problem child in that system is the aero separator itself being clogged up or failed in some regard. And on those engines, the aero separator is not external. Um, it is mounted in the driver's side or in the, I think that's, that's bank one. It's in the bank one timing chain cover behind the chain guide. So it's timing chain removal to replace the air oil separator. I've looked up the book time on it. The book time from BMW is 21 hours, um, to replace the, the air oil separator. Um, so you've got a car that has like a relatively simple vacuum leak repair, um, needs a set of plugs or needs the plugs cleaned up. Um, but then the problem is it needs this crankcase ventilation or aero separator issue resolved. Um, and that's, um, again, not a pleasant conversation to have with somebody that you have no rapport, um, with. Sure. So, uh, I think that, uh, the last time you and I hung out, that is, that is where you were and you mm-hmm. proposed to me how uh, you would uh, have uh, this, this delicate conversation and all of the things that you as a shop owner were considering as a part of this conversation. So, so tell me about the, the, the kinds of things that are going through your mind and then ultimately how you had that conversation. Well, like hashing it all out here, um, one, it all, it actually it sounds like a very simple problem, and it, it sounds like, um, honestly, like not a very difficult conversation to have. Um, so I'm actually thinking, like, why why was this even newsworthy enough for me to bring it up to you in conversation a couple of days ago? I think, one, because of the overwhelming amount of cigarettes. <laughs> in the corner. But, um, but, but also, I think, I think when you and I were just BSing that night, I was just kind of... Um, you know, talking about the day and stuff like that. And that was just kind of an annoying car. I think why it's annoying to me is because um, I want customers to be happy. Um, I want them to see a value in what we do. And I felt like, and this is me projecting this on this customer, I felt like I was set up for a customer that was not going to value what I had to say and was not going to be happy with, <laughs> with what I had to say. And so I think that's why, why it kind of weighed on me a little bit is, um, the car was nasty from a cigarette smoke standpoint, but the bigger issue was that I didn't think there was a way that I was going to have a satisfied customer. So I was working towards what ultimately I felt like no matter what I did was going to be an unsatisfied customer. And that was all just like a, you know, a, a mental, you know, sort of. Well, sure. But I, I think that that in itself is an important uh, point of conversation, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, part of the relationship is making sure that, um, you know, you have customers that are happy with the work that you do and that those uh, relationships persist. And so it is tricky uh, because I think in this instance, you would probably say that um, even if ultimately you you uh, could work on this car or uh, decided not to, 
Uh, you didn't want that person to leave feeling like they got the short end. Exactly. And so if I told him I didn't want to work on his car, which I really didn't want to work on that car, um, that would be giving him the short end. If I tell him what the car needs in terms of, of the running repair, um, I didn't feel like I had the report where he would even believe, um, you know, the, the breadth of, of what that repair was going to entail in terms of the oil separator. And then lastly, with those cars, even if we did the aero separator repair, the vacuum leak repair through new plugs in it, it's a 120,000 mile, you know, 18 year old 540i, like it's going to have eight other things take a shit <laughs> in the next six months. So it's just one of those cars that there's a reason why you don't see many of those on the road. Uh, and you certainly don't see them on the road anymore that um, aren't what I would characterize as like enthusiast owned. Um, and so it's just one of those cars that the, the owner and the condition of the vehicle, um, just, just don't, don't add up to, uh, long-term, you know, viability for, for this vehicle at this stage of disrepair that it's in. Okay. So, um, then what happened? Uh, I called him and explained to him that the vacuum leak. Uh, that was causing misfires was relatively easily resolvable, um, that the oil filed spark plugs were at least temporarily easily resolvable, uh, but that that was the least of his worries. The bigger concern is why um, oil's accumulating in the intake of the car. And I explained to him that being that it has a new crankcase ventilation valve on it, which I did not install, um, so I can't, I can't speak necessarily to that component, um, but it was more likely that the issue lie with the aero separator and not with the crankcase ventilation valve. And that that is a very major undertaking, um, that I did not see anything wrong with the oil change service that had been done to the car, um, that would cause these issues, um, that I thought that that, um, you know, that correlation, um, you know, was, was not causation in this case. Um, and that I asked him, um, you know, if the idea of potentially having to spend, you know, $3,000 on repairs on this car um, was was something that, that he would entertain, I think I did mention something about how, you know, this isn't the type of conversation I'd like to have with a customer the first time in before we've established some kind of working relationship or, or rapport. But I think that it was important that we discuss, um, you know, those repairs up front before we spent any money on the car. Um, that there would have to probably be some willingness to to go that far with it to give him back a drivable product. Okay. And he, like previously, didn't really seem like he was listening to me all that great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, I uh, I told him, um, yeah, he he was not particularly excited about the the cost that would be associated with doing the aero separator repair. Um, he asked if, if fixing the, the intake manifold leak and, and just kind of cleaning up the, the spark plugs as I had would give him some kind of drivable product. And I said, yes, until the plugs oil foul again, um, which probably won't take long. And he said, well, I'd like to do that much work so that the car can at least be driven and not, not towed and then see, um, basically how bad the, the oil, um, you know, fouling consumption issue was. And I told him that 
um, I gave him a little honest advice that I felt like the car had been let go far enough that it was going to take um, many thousands of dollars of uh, professional help to get back ahead of. And that because of, I said the condition of the vehicle, but I really meant the relative cleanliness of the vehicle <laughs> that I, I didn't think that it would be, be a great investment, um, but that I could appreciate his desire for the car to at least be drivable and that I could repair the vacuum leak relatively inexpensively. Um, and so I was okay with him spending that amount of money on the car. Um, but that I would not typically encourage him to pursue the repair further. Um, so it's kind of throwing good money at bad, but maybe for a little bit of a cause in that he could at least, uh, get around in the car, um, to, to some, to some degree, but the, the shadow was looming with the, um, with the, uh, aero separator, uh, issue on the vehicle. Okay. So, uh, it's, it's Tuesday. And I think that you said that the, the vehicle just recently, uh, left the premises. Mm -hmm. Um, you'd spent a considerable time thinking about, um, the scenario and how to handle that, that customer interaction. Mm -hmm. Um, would you say that that person, uh, maybe wasn't necessarily ecstatic about the situation, but, uh, given the circumstances, uh, was was the relationship as favorable as it could have possibly been? Yeah, and he was he was friendly. Uh, he smelled like his car when he showed up. Um, the like whole office at the shop smelled like cigarettes for like twenty minutes after he left. But in terms of personality and demeanor, um, he was he was pleasant enough. And again, much like the phone call, just a, l- a little aloof, um, if you will. But, um, yeah, he was easy enough. It's just one of those, I like, I just, I guess, I guess you like, you think like Aaron, you fix cars for a living, dude. Like you don't have to have some like enlightening connection with every customer that comes in, but it was one of those ones where like, I didn't really feel like I did the guy any kind of solid, um, other than I'm not the guy that threw eight ignition coils and a throttle body at it. Um, but, uh, you know, at least, at least we, uh, you know, shot him straight on, on what the actual, um, you know, problem was and, and what the, the likely, you know, sort of ownership future of the vehicle was at that stage. So, um, but, um, you know, I, t- I took some of his money and I, I didn't give him like, uh, you know, a, a great product at the end, not to say that the workmanship we did wasn't, um, performed correctly, mm-hmm. but you're just kind of looking at the car, like, um, I don't know. So just, humor me for just a second. Um, if the book time is 21 hours, uh, you would expect that the nature of this repair would be, let's say, 2500 to $5,000 front to back. Um, well, probably, I mean, probably more like 2500 but yeah. Um, if uh, I, I think people have a general hesitation to uh, spend... A, a an amount of money comparable to the worth of that vehicle. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to know what is the market value for a 2003 BMW 540i? I mean, in that condition, I, I'd say the car would be like next to impossible to sell. I mean, if you had like the car professionally detailed and, and this, that, and the other, I mean, maybe that car is worth, you know, if it were running decent, 2500 or $3,000 or something like that. It can't be much at all. Well, and, um, and that, I think, um, highlights something interesting. Adam and I recorded a show last night that will probably come out before this one. But 
Um, he spent, I think, twenty five hundred dollars for a running driving fit. And yeah. <laughs> uh, conversely, this vehicle was uh, considerably more expensive when it was new. Um, but it is in a state of disrepair that it is worth next to nothing. Yeah, sure. And uh, part of our conversation in the last week, as we were talking about, you know, this this particular BMW, you and I were talking about the E60 M5s, the ones with the V10s. Yeah. And why those are worth next to nothing. I mean, if they're in really good shape, they're worth something. But most of them, um, they're they're just difficult cars to. What I I, rem- I remember that conversation. I just explained that like when BMW builds a car, the from a from a design standpoint, I don't think that they sat down and said let's build a, you know, 200,000 mile or, or even 30 year durable, um, you know, sedan. What they said is let's build a incredible performing, extremely fun to drive V10 sedan. And it was built for the now it was built for 2004. It was not built for 2030 in their mind by 2030, they'll have built 18 other kick-ass sedans that will trump that one. And so you have to look at a car like that through the lens of 2004 or whenever it was that those, those were built 2008 or something. Um, and, And you have to say, this was a kick ass bad mama jamma in 2010, but you get 10, 12 years later and those cars didn't age particularly well, meaning they were, you know, challenging to maintain and, um, you know, certain material choices and stuff like that were beautiful for the original owner who drove it the first, you know, five, six years or, or maybe even longer. Um, but as those cars age, get more miles on them and pass on to second and third owners, um, those materials are um, increasingly difficult to maintain and take care of. And so the vehicles depreciate sharply. Well, it's it's funny, uh, the contrast. Um, it's it's basically it use that M5 as as the polar opposite to uh, the original what 1990 Lexus LS 400 which yeah, was built. like their Toyota's first foray into like a premium luxury sedan. Um, yeah. Those, those vehicles were built like tanks. And uh, I, I will say that on my way home from work yesterday, I saw yeah. a mint original Lexus LS 400. And I was like, I bet that thing could almost be as good as when it was built. We probably service it. We service a couple of them that are like in phenomenal condition um, and have like 350,000 miles on them. And if you drove them, you would think they had 50,000 miles. On right. Them. Um, now the owners have paid for the car like two times over in maintenance, but um, they, they love the way those cars drive. But also, you know, those vehicles, those, those Lexus and, and Lexus and Toyota products in general, a lot of them like a stated design goal of Toyota and Lexus is the longevity and durability of those cars. Um, I used to live uh, with somebody um, when I was in school whose father was an executive at Toyota. Um, and he told me once that in, in one of their kind of round table um, discussions, the conversation subject was one, how long the average Toyota and Lexus owner keeps their vehicle and how long they're aware of their vehicle, meaning 
the average Lexus, or, or I shouldn't say average, but it's not uncommon for Toyota and Lexus owners to sell their vehicles um, to friends, uh, to pass them down to family members, and that those owners care about how that vehicle's performing and running when it has 160,000 miles on it. Mm-hmm. Um, that the way those vehicles run at 160,000 miles influences their decision to purchase another one of those vehicles. Um, sure. And so it felt like that had to be appreciated and attended to in the design of those vehicles. I can guarantee you nobody at BMW thought that the <laughs> M5. Um, and so just like very different design goals for very different types of customers um, with, with very different uh, metrics um, for, uh, you know, for kind of scoring the, the value of, of the vehicle. Well, I, I think I've talked a little bit about this on the show before with Adam, but, uh, there is something to be said about, um, a certain like genre of luxury vehicles or performance vehicles that, um, really, uh, base a huge portion of their worth in having, the newest, latest, and greatest technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a consequence of that is uh, sometimes that technology will age grace- gracefully and sometimes it won't. And the value of the vehicle uh, 15 years from now depends very much on on those finer details, right? Like uh, a 12-year-old Range Rover is worth almost nothing. Um yeah a 2004 Lamborghini Gallardo with uh, e-gear worth next to nothing. Um, yeah, as vehicles become more technologically advanced, it will be, I think, I would theorize, it will be much more difficult for them to achieve, um, you know, the kind of classic collector status that we think of vehicles of yesteryear. So if you think about, like, what a 1930s versus 19, you know, go 20-year 20, 20 gaps, 1930, 1950, 1970, 1990, 2010, 2030, you know, kind of the expectation of a vehicle as like transportation, comfort, um, safety, performance, those things next to nothing to do with the, you know, with the driving experience, so to speak, you know, the, um, you know, the infotainment centers, uh, in the vehicles, you know, once we've gone beyond just the traditional, um, you know, stereo, um, the cars to me are, are much, um, you know, quicker to kind of age out. And because they're much quicker to become technologically irrelevant, the materials that are chosen to build the, that are they're being built with to me seem less durable or are more matched to those timelines. Um, so you kind of think of it along the lines of like iPhones um, where like, I mean, what's a, I'm, I don't own an iPhone. So I have, I have like one of these uh, crude little Samsung devices. Um, but um, you know, I'd imagine that like the technology in the original iPhone versus like the fifth iPhone versus whatever version we're on now that they've just so quickly outdated themselves that there's like nothing particularly interesting or desirable about those early iPhones that anybody would care to have or, or really look at for more than a passing moment. And I wonder if we'll feel that way about some of the cars that are being built now. Well, uh, you say that, and I think that's true for iPhones, but I would say also that I'm uh, a big dork 
And um, I have in my possession a number of like 15, 20 year old iPods uh, that are yeah. uh, close to mint condition. And they what kind are of music's on them. What's that? <laughs> what kind of music's on them? Uh, all the music you had in college. Right. Um, that said, one of those units has been like uh, professionally modified, I guess is the right word to yeah. uh, replace a spinning disc hard drive with a, like a different board and uh, like use an SD card with more storage capacity. That's also uh, non-moving parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love my music streaming service. I, I use it at work all the time. Um, but there is something to be said about like an iconic classic device. Yeah. Um, I feel like that iPod is a lot more like the Lexus LS 400 than it is the Lamborghini though. Could be. Um, well, uh, we're 45 minutes into this show and I think you've been, you and I have been on the phone for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had advice to give to, uh, customers that might, or prospective customers that might be interested in having, uh, the winning formula work on their car. What would you say? Um, ask your cigarettes outside of your vehicle um, would be at the top of the list. Um, and uh, otherwise, right. Just give us a call and introduce yourself and we'll introduce ourselves back and we'll probably work on your vehicle. Awesome. Well, uh, check winning formula has a website, right? It's uh, mm-hmm. is it winningformula.com. It's winningformulagarage.com. I believe winningformula.com is owned by like a casino conglomerate. And last they were interested in selling it, it had a, a pretty handsome price tag attached to it. Well, that's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Well, but in doing so, you've established that you work on cars in your URL, which I think is counter to your, your original mm, intent. That's true. Messed up. Um, well, and so... This is probably the first of many episodes. We did an entire episode where we didn't talk about GLTC at all, which is uh, a favorite pastime of you and I. And uh, probably the next time we should have a GLTC conversation. I can do that. Well, uh, thanks a lot. And uh, we really appreciate the support of Apex Pro uh, and uh, FCP Euro, where all the parts you buy are guaranteed for life. And by all the patrons, uh, if you sign up for our Patreon and you have interest in Apex Pro, uh, you can use our discount code that's available uh, if you sign up and get a handsome discount on uh, some additional services for Laptimer Plus and uh, Phone Mount so that you can drive faster on track. So thanks, Aaron. Dang, Abe, I just got a text message from one of my customers. They were uh, listening in, probably. No, it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal subject in question. Well, um, do, do you, we don't have to end the show if you want to, if you want to discuss, maybe we can do that. No, it's not that good, actually. But uh, I feel like uh, just bashing on my BMW customer for like uh, a half an hour um is probably not that interesting to the average like uh person who knows what a slip angle is and likes going to racetracks but this customer who text messaged me at 9:58 p.m. 
uh, faster on track question mark 2023 GT4 RS or Chevrolet Z06 Z06 by a mile. Yeah, I mean it would absolutely crush it. I mean it would depend on I, I you could say it would depend on the racetrack, but I'm not even sure that it would depend on the racetrack. The Z06 would would destroy the GT4 RS. Certainly. Both like hypothetical vehicles that don't well, like the the GT4s are consistent performers, but they are not uh, insane performance machines. Yeah. I mean, like, if you want insane performance, you go for the GT3s or the GT2s. True. And you lighten your, lighten your wallet in the process. Yeah, that's true. But uh, to go fast, I think, is generally expensive. Yes, it is. Yeah, maintaining those sort of vehicles is not that much fun on track. Everybody should just buy Honda Fits. Uh, or Civics. Yeah, Civics are okay. But uh, Adam and I re- uh, recorded and talked a little bit about the uh, the expense of the weekend of going to Putnam a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, I mean, a considerable difference, or at least a non-negligible difference, was, uh, one, the amount of fuel burned on track, uh, and two... <laughs> the difference in price between premium 93 and 87. Um, Very true. Like I, I think I burned uh, while on track over the, the day or day and a half, probably uh, 25 or 30 gallons of premium. And I bet he burned like eight of <laughs> uh, the 87. So like, yeah, yeah it, it does add up. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, Oh, uh, let's let's close out on one other high note. Um, sure. You went to binge Tokyo this weekend to go to mm-hmm. NCM. I think in general, people had a good time. How was your experience? Uh, yeah, I had a decent time. So I just went down for one day and I was honestly pretty tired. Um, like the the night before at the shop, um, or I should say the day before at the shop, we were getting quite a few cars ready for that event. And we had a guy call us like last minute and ask if we could squeeze in his uh, Camaro. Uh, it was like a, a Gen 5 Camaro SS, like 1LE. It's a pretty cool car um, that he just bought and needed kind of gone through before the event. And it turned out to be way more work than we thought it was going to be. So I was down at the shop at like 730 on Friday trying to finish up this guy's car. And I hadn't touched my personal car. Um, I also stood my wife up for something I was supposed to do that night. Um, and so the second I finished the guy's car, I was like, I've got to run home and apologize to my wife. So I get home at like eight o'clock at night and I'm like, screw it. You know, I'll just go down in the morning, take a quick look at my car loaded on the trailer. Um, and I woke up the next morning, get down to the shop. And I remembered that NCM has sound regulations and that I needed to put the muffler on my, on the, uh, Porsche Cayman, okay. which is just like straight piped out the back. So I like hung the muffler on the Porsche, got down to the track at like, I don't know, 10 a.m. or something like that. Um, and by that point, I was just like ready to relax and do something easy. So I basically just went out on track and kind of like poked around in the in the Cayman a little bit. Um, and so it wasn't, I don't know, when you when you do like racing and stuff like that, like it's such a adrenaline rush and there's like so much focus that on an event like that where you're just kind of tooling around, um, it almost feels like wasteful in a car like that. Sure. And it's one of those situations where if I had a Honda fit, I would have just driven my Honda fit down and I probably would have <laughs> had more fun goofy around. So I kind of putzed around in the, in the Cayman a little bit, but I, I more enjoyed just like the conversations with some people like, um, 
uh, Andy Smedgard had come down from Wisconsin. So I got to go over and chat with those guys a little bit. Um, and then Chris Derby was there. Who's always fun to talk to and chat with him a little bit. Um, and then I didn't even get a chance to talk to Drew who runs the event, uh, which I, I would have enjoyed. Um, but mostly it was just nice, nice talking and seeing some people. I could have just as easily gone down without a car and it would have just as much fun. Sure. Well, I, I know that um, Chris has been running, or excuse me, not Chris, um, Drew's been running those events for a few years now and in the past has had like a pretty substantial car show and like uh, community presence uh, in yeah. addition to what's going on on track. Was there was there car show stuff this weekend as well? I didn't pick up on, on a ton of that um, at the event, but the event was very well attended. I think there were like right around 100 cars signed up. Um, which I think is kind of uh, where where Drew uh, caps the event at. That's so it helpful. was well attended, but like, but everybody was, you know, driving and and having fun out on track. I think one of the cool things what I always enjoy and and really what we try to do a little bit with the winning formula events when we do them. I mean, firstly, those events are are about getting our customers out on track um, in a. Uh, more of a test day environment. Uh, we find like lapping days can be so crowded when there's a hundred cars there. So those are like you know, small group events where you can really get some quality laps in the car. And then also the idea is to make us accessible to be able to, um, to talk with customers there. But one of the other things that you always want to do, what grid life's done and what I think is admirable about what Drew's doing is you want to get new people out to the track or you want to get different demographics out to the track. And what's kind of cool about Drew event, Drew's event, as you asked me, like was the car show contingent there? And I'm like, I said, no, but the answer is I think they were on track, right? So it's like he got people that normally would have been, in the car show to just be like, Hey, there's a racetrack there. You guys should drive on it. Um, and it seemed like everybody was out there having a good time. So yeah, I think those guys were there. They were just doing what, what drew would probably like to see them do. And that's enjoying the racetrack. So, um, with, with that being, um, kind of what feels like the end of the race season, do you have any more events planned for this year or is it, uh, a few months off in preparation for the start of the uh, 2022 race season. Yeah, it's definitely like, it's definitely thinking about next year right now, but at the same time, you know, we were prepping cars this weekend or sorry, this week for a bunch of our customers that are going down to Barber this weekend. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, the resume group has a uh, Barber event this weekend. So even when we personally aren't going to the track, we pretty much have customers. Well, not pretty much. We literally have customers that are going to the track year round. So there'll always be like some day to day, just like maintenance and prep um, on cars for, for certain people that extend their season by going South. But for us personally, um, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to take a break and, and look towards next year. Um, we have uh, private memberships to uh, Putnam park and NCM has like a, a driving club group as well. Um, so we will still be on track this year, um, but not at, not at any public events or anything of that. So, um, GLTC, Oh, we talked about GLTC. We're not allowed to talk about GLC. Um, GLTC, um, changed to the 200 treadwear tire for this next season. Um, so we'll, we'll go up to Putnam, I'm sure some over the winter and, and put some laps on, on those tires and kind of see how the cars respond to them. Um, and then with the way that GLTC field is, um, I mean, it's just, uh, very competitive at the pointy end. And I spent, um, like no time developing the Miata last season, which kind of seemed like, like negligence, like the car had been, uh, so strong in years prior that I kind of felt like, um, 
there was something to be said for just leaving the car alone and seeing like if it could keep pace with these, you know, sort of, um, you know, newer faces in the series or people coming in and putting, putting forth stronger efforts. Um, and then by the end of the season, I was like that poor car, like, you know, it has, it has a pedigree. It's like, it's always done well. And I just kind of let it slip into like, uh, you know, I don't want to call it a mid pack, but cause I think the car is always finishing like, like second, third, fourth, but a car that like couldn't necessarily compete for race wins. So I want to try to spend some time with that car in the off season, get the ABS system on it, but also just get back to the track in like um, just a very fundamental sense and play with some different setups and, and try to find a, a couple tenths of speed to uh, move it back into a position where maybe it can fight for wins next season. Well, and uh, it's, it's funny that as you say that uh, you you're, you're saying that your, your very winning GLTC Miata has been neglected. Um, but there is a V8 swap Miata that sits on the lift in your shop <laughs> and has been there for a considerable amount of time. Yeah. Uh, I haven't driven that car in two years, um, but it's a nice, a nice car. Um, it's like a, a dry sump V8 Miata with all the fixings. There has been discussion about detuning that um, and, and trying to like, it basically be like a undercover Swenson Corvette. Um, but there'd be like a certain irony to the Miata with the, with the, with the V8 or the Corvette underpinnings um, <laughs> in the, in the series. But um yeah, that, that car's got like um, um, it's got uh, fender flares on it that like one set of wheels I had for it's fifteen by twelve all the way around. Golly! Uh, and so I think under the old rules uh, with the Hoosier, it would have run uh, if we ballasted it up a little bit. It would have run a two forty five Hoosier, which you can stretch onto an eleven inch wheel. So imagine like a two forty five Hoosier on a fifteen by eleven in a V8 Miata out there in a GLTC field. Like it would have been a, a, a pretty wild car to be out in that field, but uh, we've already got the, the Miata and the, and the Cayman and stuff. And obviously that's, that's more than enough to, um, to keep us busy. And then like, like most people in, um, in the industry professionally, um, you know, our cars tend to, um, you know, come last in the pecking order. So, usually like Thursday night before a race that they're getting prepped and put together after all the customer cars are finished. I think we um, saw that um, you and I uh, drove to Heartland Park this year together in the RV. And yeah. uh, uh, I drove the bus to your shop and we were uh, intending to leave as soon as the car was on the trailer. And I think yeah. it couldn't have been more than one hour uh, prior to my arrival was when you started prepping the the Cayman for the weekend. Yeah, and we spent like two total hours prepping the car for the for the weekend. I was pretty ill prepared for that weekend, but I, I just wanted to go drive that track, and I thought the idea of driving the bus out there was fun. So uh, the main focus on that was like if the car's reliable and safe, then it's ready to go. And so we didn't really spend much time focusing on like the speed and setup of the car as much as just like is everything tight and does any is anything going to fail when we get there? Which that car was phenomenally reliable all season long, but our pace was not great at Heartland, but it was still a fun weekend. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, how any potential rule changes will affect uh, the balance of performance on the Cayman. Cause I think the car is really cool. And one of my favorite parts about it is um, it's not really plug and play as much as people think, but I do uh, appreciate that um, at least when you were at Coda this year, Mm -hmm. uh, many people were fighting gremlins and working on things constantly. 
And yeah. uh, between races, you spent your time uh, deciding where uh, the appropriate placement for any particular sticker was supposed to be. I was probably more concerned with where I was going to have dinner at um, that when I, <laughs> when I was down there. My, my food choices in Austin are so so plentiful. That's, that's where the mind has to be. Yeah. But um, yeah, the strength of that car is definitely the, the reliability. In terms of BOP, like honestly, that car is not, I don't know how you say, like it's, it's not the, it, I think realistically from a pace standpoint, it's like a fifth place car. Um, so it's, it's one of those cars that like, there's not going to be any rule change that all of a sudden makes it a first place car. I don't, I don't see a way from a setup standpoint or anything that I'm interested in, in, in investing in to make that car, what I would consider like a front running car. I think the way the, the way the rules are so open, there's strengths to that Cayman chassis, but there's also weaknesses to that Cayman chassis that are. Uh, very difficult to overcome um, in rain races. The car's really good. Just that, that counterweight over the rear wheels, um, you can break the car super deep, but in terms of just like front end grip performance, um, you know, the, the Miatas, the S 2000s, um, you know, the, the, um, the older civics and Integros and stuff, the front suspension on those cars just, just works so well sure. that it's really hard for the front end, the nose of a Cayman um, to keep pace with those cars. I think with the rule changes for next year, uh, though the the car um, will will be very similar in terms of where it, where it sits in the pecking order. Um, if the like top three or four guys uh, either don't show up or have mechanical problems uh, or something like that, the Cayman can can sneak a podium or a race win. But if um, if those guys are on their game, then it's just kind of hanging. The Cayman's kind of hanging around in fifth and making the photos of the grid look cool. Uh, <laughs> hanging out in the background. Well, I, I think people have this perception that because it's a a prepped uh, Porsche race car, the assumption is that it is the superior chassis. And I think consistently, what you've said is, I mean, it's a pretty good car, but it's it's not the best car. It's slower than my Miata. So every single track that we took it and ran it at this year. Um, every single track that I ran the Cayman at this year that I have also run my Miata at, I've run faster laps than the Miata. Um, so it's worth noting that we were taking the Cayman to races when it was the slower of the two cars that I had the option of driving. But I also was just really enjoying driving the Cayman. It was a very fun car to race. And part of the, the thing that prompted the build of that car was that as far as we were concerned, it was kind of the opposite of a Miata. Um, so our Miatas are, you know, what front engine rear wheel drive. So now we're mid engine rear wheel drive. The Miatas a inline four, the Porsche's a flat six. Um, the Miatas a six speed, um, or sorry, five speed or six speed, depending on what gearbox I had in it manual. The Porsche was a PDK. Um, the Miatas a arm all the way around the Porsche strut suspension all the way around. Um, there's just, you know, the Miata has no driver aids. The Porsche has traction control and ABS. Um, so it's just like the very opposite driving experience, 2000 pound car versus 3000 pound car. Um, and so the front of the field in GLTC until Jeremy kind of came along and some of the other guys was a bunch of four cylinder, you know, a arm, um, you know, until this last year, mostly non ABS cars. And so the racing had like a very spec feel to the front of the, the grid. Um, and once you were kind of in line with the other guys, passing wasn't as easy. 
um, bringing the Cayman out where it had like just a little more straightaway gusto, maybe a little stronger on the brakes than some of the other cars, a little weaker in the corners. It kind of created that like back and forth racing that, um, you know, I, I think real racers or people that are in it for the battles and not necessarily for the finishing position and accolades, um, you know, kind of desire. And I think that's why the Cayman was checking the box for me this year, but um, I don't know, hanging out in some of those races and, kind of battling for third and fourth and feeling mm-hmm. like you didn't really have a chance to win um, is still fun, but sitting in the corner of the shop is the Miata. And I'm like, man, I need to get that thing back into race winning <laughs> form and at least try to give some of these guys a, a, a challenge, you know, not, not just for myself, but uh, to try to make their racing exciting. I don't think anybody um, enjoys winning races without feeling like they, they were challenged. Sure. Um, and so there, there is something to be said for, for, for trying to, uh, trying to give, give chase to some of those guys who've shown themselves to be really, really solid racers this year. So, um, I think when we talked with you and Emil at Coda, what now seems like forever ago, um, Emil had just put the ABS into his uh, Miata for, yeah. for that swap um, is for, for you guys, is it basically just like formulaic by the book, you know, here, here are the things that need to be executed to, to do this installation, or is there some amount of, um, I don't know, complex mechanicking that has to happen to get all the bits to work right? Um. So a lot of times people ask me about like whether things are like complicated or sometimes people will be like, is it, is it difficult or is it hard? And, um, you know, I'll sometimes kind of, um, you know, slyly answer that, like, you know, it's all, it's all nuts and bolts at the end of the day. It's all pretty straightforward. Um, I would say with that installation on one level there, there's nothing particularly tech technically complicated about it, but I would also say that it is tedious to, install that system and install it in a way that's going to be reliable and serviceable long-term. So like when you're talking about running all new brake lines in the car, if you run the brake lines crudely and poorly and you don't support them well, you could potentially have a line failure. Um, If you route your wiring poorly and secure it improperly um, and don't strain relieve the wires in some way, you can have broken wires um, and issues in that way. If you route your wheel speed sensors poorly um, or don't mount them securely to the spindle or, or uh, the proper distance from the tone ring, you could have inconsistent performance of those. And so as much as it's a simple task, if you don't pay attention to all those little details, um, you might be like some competitors we saw this year that had MK60 systems that, you know, you'd hear them on the weekend and they'd say, oh, yeah, my, my ABS isn't working, so I'm, I'm breaking a little bit earlier and stuff. Um, and so the, the good thing about the attention to detail that, um, you know, mechanics like Emil possess um, is that Emil installed that system on his car and it was reliable um, and functioned well all season long. So pretty straightforward task, um, very time consuming. Um, and the little details matter when it comes down to the long-term reliability and performance of the system. So, uh, just for reference, an ABS, uh, install on a Miata like that, how many hours does it take to do an appropriate job? The, the last one that we did, we did a little extra work on the car in addition to the ABS install, and it was on a service lift for four and a half days. Um, and I think just about four of the days 
I think we we said we could probably do the install in like three and a half days. And and we don't work lazy days. Like I usually skip lunch. Um, and I'd say a meal is usually at the shop between nine and 10 hours a day. Um, so I would say that full job for us on the Mazda is something around like the 30 hour mark. That's substantial. So yeah, it's uh, like all four spindles off modified, modifying the spindles for the, to accommodate the wheel speed sensors, all new brake lines, mounting the pump, um, wiring the car, mounting the auxiliary sensors that go with that system. Um, and then obviously routing, running all those, um, all those components on the car. Um, that car didn't have, um, tone rings, um, for the, um, uh, for the sensors. So getting those on the vehicle, um, a lot of the things are smaller tasks, um, that, that, that just kind of add up on top of each other, but running all new brake lines, um, and, and doing it thoughtfully is, is pretty time consuming. Yeah. So, um, uh, in that scenario, uh, when I think about brake lines, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about running from the ABS unit. And uh, uh, if you were to buy one from the factory, it would probably come pre-bent. Uh, do you guys have like jigs in place to know exactly where you want the bends to be? Or is that like, is it something that's just kind of done on the fly to to make sure that everything fits and goes where it's supposed to? Yeah, we don't have we don't have jigs for like pre-bending like line kits for those. If you were going to try to produce that as like a product for people to install on their own, you could make like pump mounting, specify the pump mounting and then, yeah, build out all your all your lines and dimensions. Um, we're doing them, you know, each each one off. Um, so just, you know, mapping out and and building our lines. But um, yeah, it's um, it's it's time consuming. I bet. Well, uh, I guess then I would probably close this podcast by saying, if you're interested in doing an ABS kit for your Miata or something else, uh, probably you should uh, have that introductory conversation soon because racing season is coming up. Yeah. Or even if you just have any questions about what we've done, we're always happy to help people out. All right, Aaron, thanks for your time today. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Sounds good, man. Good talking with you. Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the pits at a gridlight to say hello. Hello.